Richard, let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we take up, as the scripture teaches us, the sword of the Spirit praying. uh, And we ask, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would work in us in such a way that as we read uh, these words which you worked into this apostle named Peter, that you would work them in us as well. Please, I pray, remove any resistance we have to hearing and believing and enable us then um, to focus our attention upon the very one Holy Spirit whom you have come to glorify and that is our Lord Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles, please, or whatever it is that you have to look upon with the scripture in it uh, and turn to 1 Peter. Uh, I had initially planned to read just verses 18 to 22, but I'm inclined to begin with verse 13. So 1 Peter and chapter 3, please, and beginning with verse 13. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, Christian faith is grounded in, focused upon a number of events, a number of historical events, the incarnation, the conception of this child and this, at that point in time, unmarried woman named Mary, and then this child's birth, this child who is the very son of God, the son of man, who has two natures, God and human, God and man, In one person, the incarnation, it happened. At a point in time, it all happened. Then the life of this one Jesus, and then his crucifixion. He died, and when he died, he died for the sins of sinners. That is, he died taking the wrath of God, the judgment of God against human beings who had sinned against God so that such who believe in him, would be reconciled to God, forgiven their sins and reconciled to God. The crucifixion, an event. Then the resurrection of Jesus, where he rose from the dead after making payment for our sins, since he had no sin. Then he was free to go, and and he rose again. He rose from the dead, as we said this morning in our creed, all of this. And we said this morning that he rose again from the dead on that third day. Jesus did, having had paid for our sins, He rose again, the resurrection. And he rose in this new body as the first fruit of this new creation that we would enter into. That is all who believed in him. And then the ascension as we considered last Sunday. So so there you have it for us. You have Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and these events that we we hold to as actually happened. And, And Peter makes appeal to such events when he writes to this church. And so these events are always on our minds, really. What we believe is grounded 
in them. And we, we took up this passage last week because it was Ascension Sunday, as I mentioned. And we don't always pay attention to these things. This year we're paying attention to these things. Uh, and we have this verse 22. It says, who, as in Jesus, has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And, and Peter wrote this word about the ascension of Jesus, so his ruling and reigning, to bring this group of people hope. Because this group of people to whom he's writing had been suffering and would be suffering. And it would be the worst kind of suffering, perhaps. I don't know if it's the worst kind. It seems the worst kind to me. The most frustrating kind, perhaps. They were suffering or being persecuted for having done that which is good, that which is right, for following after Jesus. And you would think, I would think, if I were them, that if Jesus is ruling and reigning and I'm doing Right, that is, I'm doing good, I'm, I'm, I'm following him. Why is it that I'm suffering? And so he laid out for them uh, this reason, if you will, for their suffering so that through their suffering, as I read in the earlier verses, through their suffering, that people would ask them of their hope and they would be able to tell the hope and perhaps even through their suffering bring people to God. But but then we went, you remember, I trust if you were here, to Luke chapter 24. To say, to to really get this, to really understand this, you could have in your mind, and it would be helpful, the ascending Jesus. Having in our minds the ascending Jesus. Because when Jesus ascended, you remember, he put his arms out in a priestly blessing. And so, and and, and he continued, that's the last they saw of Jesus. He never put his arms down. He never tucked them in his pocket or any of that. He just simply had them out. That's how they remembered him, emblazoned upon their mind, this picture of Jesus ascending in priestly blessing, knowing that even now as he rules and reigns over every circumstance, rules and reigns over all things, even the suffering that they would experience and whatever difficulties and good that we experience in our life, he's ruling and reigning over that. And all of this is his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. He's keeping them, even in the midst of the suffering and perhaps even through suffering as he's strengthening their faith. Lord, bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, this priestly blessing. That is, to know that his intention for every circumstance of life. I say this slowly because we have to grab a hold of it. Because I don't want to be trite about it. For some of us, we've been just having a nice week and all is well and we go, oh, sure. But for others of us, not so much. Not so much for them. But every circumstance of life has been ordained to bring God's good intention for us. And that by his grace, it's not that we deserve it. So we won't lose it because we don't deserve it in the first place. It's his grace to us. And his countenance is lifted upon us. He's always looking to us so that he'll bless. And this, because we have peace with him, and this will grant peace to us. All right? So that would be a hope if we can get a hold of that. Now, this is Pentecost Sunday. Now, Pentecost Sunday is Pentecost, you know, means 50. Greek means 50. It's 50 days after the Passover. It was in ancient Israel, a feast of harvest. So there'd be a harvest that would come in. They'd be thankful for that. Be recognized on this day of Pentecost to begin this harvest season, if you will. And and also in ancient Israel, it became known as the celebration of the giving of the law. If you can think about ancient Israel leaving Egypt, right? And so they left Egypt, and then they went to Mount Sinai. And so they said, well, at Mount Sinai, we got the law that was sometime after we left Egypt. So, so we'll celebrate that. It wasn't in the Bible that way, but during the intertestamental period, I like to say that. I think what's that mean? It means between the testaments, <laughs> right? After the old, before the new, in that period of time, it became this celebration of the giving of the law. Now, for us as believers, 
on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, some days after the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And that was the first harvest, if you will, of the reigning Christ. On that day, 3,000 souls, if we could put it in agricultural terms, 3,000 souls were harvested on that day. And so we, we see it in this outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit. And we could also, if we wanted to, say this, that the law was no longer something on the outside, but now something on the inside. That as the prophet Jeremiah spoke of the new covenant that would come in Jesus, that the law was written upon their hearts. And so we grab a hold of this day of Pentecost as well because of the recognition that the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. Now Jesus had told them about the Spirit who was to come. If you read in John chapters 14 through 16, for instance, this was the night that Jesus was betrayed, this leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, those very special passages, intimate passages, Jesus with his disciples on that last night. And, and he lays out for them the fact that he's going to leave, but he's going to send another one, another comforter that is another one like himself. It would be the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit would come with the sole purpose, if you will, of glorifying Jesus. We need to get that in our minds. Glorifying Jesus. His job, his purpose is to, to, to reveal, if you will, Jesus. And take, as Jesus put it himself, that which is mine and bring it to you. See, all that Jesus accomplished on the cross for those for whom he accomplished it, is taken then by the Holy Spirit and applied to us, right? So that we can be saved, so we know who Jesus is. You remember when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we can all form the words. We can all say Jesus is Lord if we have, you know, all the right stuff going on in our mouths. But, but, but that, you know, that's not what he meant, what he meant was to really say, to really believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord can only be said if there is a work of the Holy Spirit, meaning that because of our sin, we'll always say he isn't, at least with our lives. It takes a work of the Spirit of God to move in our hearts, to change us. Jesus put it to give us new life so that our sin is overcome to that extent so that we can believe and say Jesus is Lord All right that's the work of the Holy Spirit that's why even on Pentecost Sunday we don't necessarily sing Holy Spirit songs the reason we don't sing Holy Spirit songs is because we don't want to offend the Holy Spirit we want to sing Jesus songs because that's what he wants us to sing See, when we're thinking about Jesus, when we're talking about Jesus, we're emphasizing Jesus, when we're trusting Jesus, when we're praying through Jesus, when we're recognizing Jesus, the Holy Spirit is thrilled. He's worshipped, you see. In fact, in, in, in the first versions of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, there was very little mention of the Holy Spirit. And it was a critical point of this great confession that was written in the mid-17 centuries. And so the question began to pop up. Well, why isn't there a chapter? Why isn't there a whole section on the Holy Spirit? There is now because we're not quite as good a theologians as they were. We added one in the turn of the last century. But, but the answer was, well, the Holy Spirit is through all this. Every time we talk about Jesus. Every time we talk about recognizing our sin and trusting in Christ. Every time we talk about justification and sanctification and glorification, all those big words... All of that, we're talking about the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he'd rather us talk about that than talk about him. Because that's why he's come, you see. And so on the day of Pentecost, uh, prior to it, uh, Jesus, remember, had said to his disciples, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to empower you. He's going to be poured out on you. The way Jesus put it, he talked about it in, the, in baptismal terms. He says, just like John baptized with water, 
you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So just like, at least if John was a Presbyterian, he poured out water on those he baptized. The Holy Spirit, and this is the language of the Bible, was poured out upon them. That's the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit, depending on your prepositional preference. In or with the Holy Spirit, he's poured out upon them. And Jesus said, when that happens, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were in Judea next door, in Samaria, a little bit past that, but they're eh, not their friends, to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. You get a snapshot of that. You remember what happened. What happened was that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples of Jesus. And they began to speak, as the scriptures say, in other tongues. And what was happening is that they were being heard as well in the native languages of all the people were there. You see, this I don't mean this to sound as condescending as it will. But this was great timing of God. All right? I mean, it was the day of Pentecost. Now, there were three feasts in ancient Israel where it was required for men to come to Jerusalem. Jewish men to come to Jerusalem from wherever they were throughout the known world. They, they had to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, later the Feast of Tabernacles, but also the Feast of Pentecost. So here they are. People from all over, and I listed them, probably mispronounced them, as I was reading our call to worship in Acts chapter 2. And so here, here it was. And in that moment in time, there's a sense in which, just a sense in which, the promise of Jesus was fulfilled. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, because they were all there. All these people from all those places. And the miracle that took place was that they were able to hear in their native tongues, if you will. They said, these are Galileans, but I'm hearing them in my language. How can that be? That was the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter began to preach in a language they could all understand, no doubt, because they were all there in Jerusalem, but at least in the common language of the day, he began to preach. And when he began to preach, he began to preach of Jesus. He began to emphasize Jesus, this emphasis that of the Holy Spirit to, to speak that which is true of Jesus. And then we see the great evidence because on that day, 3,000 were saved. Do you remember when Jesus said, it's good for you that I go to the Father because I'll send the Spirit and you'll do the works that I do and greater. I don't think Jesus ever saw 3,000 come to faith. I mean, even when he fed thousands with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, they weren't converted. You remember after that time, they thought, this is great. He can, uh, where, what's he doing for lunch tomorrow? Right? And then they sort of wanted to make him king so that he could fulfill the promise of every politician of a chicken in every pot. But that's it. You know, they, they didn't really, they didn't really believe in him as Savior, as Lord. But here they did. Why? Well, that was the greater work, you see, that we will do, that the church will do. Because the Spirit has come to empower and now on the face of the earth to convict of sin and to bring to faith believers. And so that's it, you see, this day of Pentecost. Now when Peter preaches to them, and I read this as well earlier, I'll actually come back to First Peter in a minute. But when, 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 when Peter preached on this day of Pentecost, you remember at the end, they asked him a question, brothers... What shall we do? And then Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to you. Now that's quite Old Testament language, which you would expect from Peter. Not the baptism part, but this whole notion of for you and for your children, for those who are near and those who are far off. Always in ancient Israel, the Israelites were the ones who were near. And the Gentiles were the ones who were far off. So he's saying, what I want you to know now is that God has, has sort of broken the boundaries here. In ancient Israel, it was for the far off, but, but really it was concentrated in the near. 
Well, the promise here is still for the near. No question about that. For your children, please teach your children this truth, this gospel truth, as they learned this week in vacation Bible school. But also for those who are far off. So you're going to be going. That's why the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the picture that they were given. And so he says this. And when I read that, and then I read what Peter writes in his first epistle, I just hear this huge echo. But it's a little different in his epistle. Because what he does is, he's comparing now the days in which the people to whom he writes lives. He's comparing them to the days of Noah. And he's comparing the baptism which he commanded them to repent and be baptized. This baptism to the floodwaters during the days of Noah. So whatever does he mean? Now two things before I get into this. One is that I know many of you are really tired from VBS. So this might not be the best week to do this. But go with me on this. It'll be recorded. You can get it online after you wake up. But second, this isn't an easy passage, right? It just isn't. I mean, if you listened while I read it, I'm sure you did. If you listened while I read it, it's not an easy passage. Martin Luther once said, this is a marvelous passage. I simply don't know what it means. Um, but I'm presumptuous enough. To, to take it. Because you see, every time I work through a book, I always, I always circle those passages that I would never otherwise preach unless I was backed into the corner saying I'm going to preach through First Peter. And so this is that passage that I would never, ever otherwise, otherwise preach. But in the spirit of a seminary professor of mine who once says, it's really not difficult if you understand it the way I do. I'll take it up, all right? But let's do it with that spirit. But here's, here's, my, here's my promise, my pledge. I won't say anything wrong. That is to say, I won't lead you astray. That is to say, I may not, when I get to heaven, God may say, you know, you missed the point. But the points that I do make are biblical points so we can at least bank on them, whether this passage teaches them or not. So anyway, that's where I like to go when I take up these difficult ones. But this is, I think, a really helpful thing. In part because... There are so many questions about baptism that I think we can just kind of drown this morning. All right. Now, notice how he puts it. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through, uh, through water. Well, what's he mean by that? And why does he say it? That's always a big question for me as I read through the scripture. Why is he saying this now? You know, I'm, I'm, I, to me, segues, transitions are important. How, why this now? It's probably why I spend 20 minutes telling you, why I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Because I, I, transitions to me. I just So why is he saying this now? Well, remember, he's writing to a suffering church. He's writing to a group of people who are suffering. He's just said to them, I read it when I read the text, he's just said to them, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you. Why does he say that? He says that because they're suffering. And he says, because you're suffering and because you have hope, you're going to be noticed. Nobody who's suffering has any real hope. After a while, their hope is always dashed. But you're going to be suffering in the worst scenario, that is, for doing good, and still you're going to have hope. Why is that? We say, well, Jesus suffered, and when he suffered, he brought people to God. Now, our suffering doesn't bring people to God in the same way that Jesus' suffering brings people to God, right? Our, our suffering isn't atoning. But it still is used by God. In fact, it may often throughout history, the primary way that people come is by watching Christians suffer. And even by suffering at their own hand. And then they see our hope. And then they come to faith, you see. And so we don't know much of, the, much of that. We know some of that, but we don't know much of that. But he says, so you bring people to God. He says, because you get it. You understand that the days in which you live 
are quite similar to the days in which Noah lived. Now, I think that can be said at any point in time. Now, you remember the Noah story in Genesis 6 through 9. I, I would suggest you read that rather than go to the movie. Uh, you can go to the, I went to the movie, but, 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 but you'll get more out of the Bible uh, in terms of what's, what's really true there. One thing that was depicted in the movie... I never pictured Noah as Russell Crowe. I, I just, I have a whole different Noah, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but, but what was depicted in the movie was a certain sense of depravity, a certain sense of decadence, a certain sense of lawlessness. You remember, I mean, think about the days of Noah. He was the only righteous man on the face of the earth. That is to say, he was the only man so graced by God that he was in right standing with God. Think about that. You might feel lonely in your office. You might feel lonely in your family as a believer. But at least we get to come together and, and, and see one another. No, we're not the only one. But Noah wouldn't have had that experience. He was the only, the only one, really. And so there he was and everyone else was lawless. The, the way Moses puts it when he writes Genesis is that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of all the people were evil continuously. Now, again, we think we know evil, but, but that evil continuously, every thought, every inclination. And so it was depicted in the movie in a particular way, whether it was right or not, I don't know. But it's certainly, you certainly get a sense of decadence and depravity in the midst of that. After that, the, the, the movie sinks. Uh, it doesn't do well at all. Uh, once they get on the ark and all that. But um, it's uh, heretical, really. It speaks wrongly about God. But anyway, um, so, so he's saying to, 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 to these people that the days in which you live are similar. They're like that. So I want to bring this up. Jesus mentioned that as well in uh, Matthew and chapter 24. We have this from the lips of Jesus. He says, but concerning that day, which is the day of judgment he's speaking of. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as it is in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, there isn't anything at all wrong uh, inherently in eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In fact, that could define in some sense our lives. That's kind of this normal, ordinary life. But you see, they were living that, in a sense, Jesus is saying, completely unaware of the danger that they were in from the wrath and the judgment of God. It so rebelled in such a way, which is why perhaps the movie didn't depict it well. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't such obvious decadence. Maybe it was just like Lawrence, right? Or anywhere where people are just going along as if everything's fine and they have no idea that there is a judgment that is to come. It's poo-pooed. It's never thought about it. It's put down. Nobody thinks about it. And he's saying, you feel like exiles, Peter says. It's, it's because of that. It's because you know what's happening. You know what's coming. You're anticipating this. You know what it is. And you're safe even. But yet, you think about it for them and they have no idea. That's the situation in the days of, in the days of Noah. In fact, Peter would later write of it in 2 Peter in chapter 3. Here's what the people in those days were, were saying. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the days of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Same point. People are saying, you've been saying this, but we don't believe it because everything seems fine. Everything seems going along like it always has. But then Peter writes, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and, like the, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, he's saying... God was patient even in the days of Noah while Noah was building the ark. But that patience came to an end. God is being patient even now. But that patience will come to an end. He says, it's like those. But then Peter writes this amazing thing. He says that Jesus preached, proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly didn't obey during the days of Noah, essentially. Now the question is, who are these spirits in prison? And when did Jesus preach to them? I won't go through all the theories. I'll just go through one. And that is that some think that this happened after Jesus died and before he, in a sense, rose. So between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. And thus they take the expression that's in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell to mean that he descended into hell. And at that point he preached to the spirits in prison. We don't really find that anywhere in the Bible. Uh, and plus, we don't know quite what he would have preached. Um, repentance? Well, I, mm, uh, a bit late at that point. Uh, and uh, he could have said, here I am. I told you it was going to happen. I'm true. That, who knows what that would mean? But when we say descended into hell in the, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, there's a couple of ideas about what the early church fathers meant by that. One is that he simply died, and what we should say is that he descended into Hades. He descended into the place of the dead. And so if you're in some churches, they may say it that way, and I, I would concur. That isn't a, a bad way of translating that. Others would say that... Uh, that descended into hell means that when he died, most especially before he died and was forsaken by his father, that that's when he experienced the torment of hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in neither situation do, does anyone take it to mean that Jesus literally descended into hell in such a way to preach to those prisoners. And so the question is, who are those spirits in prison and to whom did Jesus preach and when? I think the most reasonable, the most helpful uh, explanation is that these are people who are now in prison because during the days of Noah they disobeyed, they didn't believe, and that Jesus preached through them through Noah during the days of Noah. I take that two points from First Peter. It's not difficult in in Second Peter. In chapter five, chapter two and verse five, he speaks of Noah as a herald or a preacher of righteousness. So all the while, Noah was preaching righteousness. I, I don't even know that he had to say much. You know, when you're building an ark in the middle of the desert, uh, I think that says it all. You know, uh, could you imagine? Uh, the insults that Noah must have taken, the questions that he must have gotten, like, what are you building? And no matter what he would talk about, what are you doing today, Noah? Well, I'm building. No matter what he would talk about, he had to talk about the fact that God had told him that destruction is coming. And so he's a preacher of righteousness. And then in 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 11, we'll back a few pages. Well, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, Peter's saying, it was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets that spoke about the sufferings of Jesus. So put all that together, saying that the Spirit of Jesus was preaching through Noah during those days. 
Now, why would that be helpful to know? I think this. That he's saying to them, you live in an age quite like the days of Noah. You've been given a gospel to herald, to declare. Just like Noah. And some days you probably think it's meaningless. Some days you probably think that no one will listen. Peter of all people would know. Oh yes, now. The Spirit of God has come. First time I preached, 3,000 people got saved. Even in the days of Noah, there were eight that were saved. And so, keep it up. Be faithful. Because you see, there is a salvation. But then Peter says something quite odd about it, frankly. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And we think, wait a minute. We've always taught baptism doesn't save. So, so why is Peter now saying baptism really does save you? I mean, does that mean that it really is salvific? That's really effective in saving. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So he's saying, listen, when I think about the flood, Peter says, I think about baptism. Now you say, okay, there's water in both. A little more in one than the other especially if you're a Presbyterian. And so, which Peter was, I'm sure. But, so, so what's really the, the comparison here? How does, what's the comparison, what's the correspondence? And Why would Peter have the audacity to say, this baptism now saves you? That's really the question, well, he says basically that water saved Noah. Yeah, they were brought safely through water. You say, wait a minute, how did, how did the water save Noah? I thought the ark saved Noah. Oh, that's the technical point. But, but the point is it did save Noah from all the wickedness of the world. It destroyed the wickedness of the world and he was saved from all of that. So now baptism now saves us. So what does, what does he really mean by that? How can baptism save now? I'm going to start a sentence, and you don't have to say this out loud, but you need to finish it in your minds, okay? I'm going to start a sentence. You need to finish it in your minds. If, you, if you're relatively new to us, you may not be able to finish this sentence in your mind. If you've been coming here more than five years, you should be able to finish this sentence in your mind. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's, you should be thinking, covenant of grace. And his covenant of grace is his promise, you should be thinking, to save all those who come to him in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason you should be able to, to, to finish that is because I say that every time I baptize anybody, right? Believer or baby or whatever. I always say that because it is a sign and a seal. Now, baptism is the covenant sign of this New Testament, if you will, this salvation through faith in Jesus. Circumcision was the covenant sign of, of having the faith of Abraham to believe and thus be counted righteous. It brings its fulfillment in baptism. Now, there's something about these words. and this, Put this in your head and you'll never be confused again about this anyway. Uh, there's something about these words, circumcision, baptism, these covenant signs, that this word stands for everything it signifies. That was an awkward sentence, wasn't it? This word stands for everything it signifies. That is, what it symbolizes, it stands for. So when in the Old Testament, when they talked about the circumcised, they would talk about those who have the faith of Abraham, those who are in Israel. We talk about the baptized, we talk about those who belong to the church. Because baptism represents the whole thing. For instance, we do this all the time. Recently, this past week, we celebrated as a country D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. I was reading an article about D-Day, and was speaking of the men who died there, and the expression was used, they died for the flag. Now, they really didn't. They weren't fighting for a piece of cloth. But the word flag is a symbol. It means 
our freedom. It means everything that's good about our country. They died for that. The, the, the buzzword was flag. So he says, baptism now saves you. It doesn't necessarily have to mean baptism is effective to save you, but it stands for all that does. All right? So when the Bible says repent and be baptized, repent, turn from your sins, and, and believe all that's wrapped up in baptism. Believe that. So to say repent and believe is the same as to say repent and be baptized. All right? And so it says this baptism saves us. But, but, but it really doesn't save us effectively just simply by baptism. Peter even knows that. He says, um, uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body. You see, if you're dirty and you take some water and you rub on it, it's effective. Unless you're a 10-year-old boy and then you can never get some of those out. But, but you, you, you know what I mean. But, but baptism, this water, doesn't effect cleansing. It symbolizes what affects cleansing. In fact, you see, water in baptism is both a sign of blessing and curse. For those who died in the flood, water, water was a curse. But for Noah and his family, the water destroyed the wickedness. It was a blessing. Or if you take it this way, this might be easier to see. For the ancient Israelites, water was a blessing. For the Egyptians, it was a curse. It was a blessing for them because when God opened the waters, they went through it. That was their baptism, at least according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They went through it, and then the water came over the Egyptians and killed them. So it was their blessing and the curse of the Egyptians. Blessing and curse. Even the Lord's Supper is a blessing and a curse. Right? It's a blessing for those who receive in faith. But for those who do not, they pour judgment upon themselves by eating and drinking. Always a sign. It's a blessing and curse, you see. And the blessing is that if you believe then you're saved. Notice how he puts it here. He says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, it only saves when there is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And what does a good, where where do we get a good conscience? I haven't time. But you can read through Hebrews chapter 9. And it speaks of the fact that we're cleansed we have to receive this good conscience because Christ has come and died for us. When we believe, when we repent, when we ask God to forgive our sins, then our consciences are cleansed. They're good. So when you come with that, you come to Him in repentance and faith, then you see baptism saves you. You come without that, baptism curses you it becomes effective at that point when i was a kid i used to read the backs of cereal boxes um and this may say something about the type of cereal i ate but i I would read the nutritional uh stuff i don't know why i would read it and i noticed as a young kid that there were two columns. One was the cereal without milk, and one was the cereal with milk. And I noticed that when you added milk, the nutritional value went up a lot, right? And so if you said, is the cereal nutritious? I would say, if there's milk, then it's nutritious. Does baptism say, Uh, When there's faith. All right? When there's faith. And so you see, on the day of Pentecost, when a believer was, when these people were baptized, they'd been baptized, they'd been circumcised, I trust, been baptized, then then that's how they would understand it. Repent, turn from your sins, and be baptized. And and when the promise said, and this is for, for your children, for those who are near and those who are far off, they would understand, oh, this is for our children too. And this baptism would be the same for their children as it meant for them. Doesn't save. But when faith comes, just like their circumcised sons, 
When faith comes, the faith of Abraham, when faith comes, then it's effective, then it saves. Until then, it doesn't. So whether we're baptizing someone on profession of faith who's never been baptized before, whether we're baptizing an infant who's coming and, and can't express faith, it means the same. That what's wrapped up in this baptism is cleansing when faith comes. In the old covenant, clearly it didn't come until they were older. And if it didn't come, they were cut off. And the new covenant, we continue to do this, at least as Presbyterian types and others in this tradition, because we don't see anywhere where it says not to. And so we continue to do it. And we say to our children, this promise is for you, because you're near. This promise is for you. What it means is, when faith comes, this saves. Now, this week, our kids... Had a number of different lessons through the course of the week. One of them was that wonderful parable of the prodigal son. Now, there's many dimensions, and you can twist and turn this parable in various ways to get great help from it. But, but one of the great expressions in the parable of the prodigal son, in some of the more literal translations, it's he came to himself. In some of the others, like the New International Version, the translation is, he came to his senses. You, you know the story I trust, even if you haven't grown up in the church, you know it. It's just the, the classic story. I, I suspect, it, at least it used to be taught in literature classes, as the way to tell a story that can grab you from various angles. But you know the situation, the father, and you know the, the two brothers, the one brother, the prodigal, he, he wants his inheritance, the dad gives him his inheritance, he goes off and he, and he squanders it in riotous living and all of that. And he's, and he's even to the point of eating a slop that he feeds the pigs, which, of course, in that culture to a Jewish man would be completely completely gross but, but, but there he is he's in that kind of a situation and he realizes that in rebellion he left his father but he thinks of his father and he comes to his senses and he says I know the kind of man he is but, but he doesn't have this sense of entitlement anymore but he goes back to his father and coming to his senses is repentance See, repentance means to turn, to change. Going in one direction, you turn to go in the other direction. In the New Testament, in Greek, it literally means to change one's mind about your own life, about God, all those things, you see. And, and he says he came to his senses at that point in time. Now, not all of us have to be eating pig slop to come to our senses. Some of us sort of grow into our senses as we grow up in the church. and Others, whatever it is. But there's a coming to one's senses, to yourself. And that coming to yourself is to do what the prodigal did. He went to his father and he said, I've sinned against you and against heaven. It's for us to come to God and say, I've sinned against you. I've left you. I thought I could make my own way. I thought I could define my own life. I thought I could direct my own life. And I thought that would be my delight. It wasn't. I realized, you are my father. I must take from you my definition, my direction. And I find my greatest joy in your house. And that's what happened, you see. And of course, the father received him back. Now, now this parable doesn't say everything. Because we know to re-inherit the son would be costly to the father. He gave him the ring back. And he said, again, all that I have is yours. And we know that the father took the cost of our return upon himself, which was the death of his son. Forgiveness always is costly, not to us who receive it, but to the one who gives it. He absorbed our death. He took it. And Jesus did. There's a sense in which, for us, Jesus was drowned but then rose again for us he took the wrath of God the judgment of God that we might live baptism only saves when there's an appeal to a good conscience when there's 
forgiveness of sins. When there's faith in Jesus. But when there is faith in Jesus, all that it stands for, the cleansing that comes, the union with Christ that is, all of that then is ours. Let's pray. Father, for me, for us, I pray that we would be a baptized, repentant people. I pray, God, for all those who have received baptism and profession of faith, that they're continuing to live that out. I pray for our children who have been baptized, that, Father, that a day would come on your appointment, that they would, by the Holy Spirit, hear the gospel and believe. I pray that be true. Work in them. Father, most especially grateful for this week and our vacation Bible school. I couldn't have imagined, God, a greater blessing than what was experienced in those five days. And so I pray, God, for the children that came, that this gospel would take roots in them. Holy Spirit, make it real in them, change their hearts in such a way to, if they haven't believed it, to believe it. If they have believed it, that this would just be one more step for them of maturity and growth to be even more assured in all that is true. So I pray for them. For our teachers, we give thanks and we pray that you would bless them with a great sense uh, that by the Spirit, the gospel went forth. We're grateful. Father, we pray for our kids in Romania that uh, you would be with them, keep them safe. I pray their work is going well. I pray that you would enable them to return safely towards the end of the week. Pray for those who've gone to Haiti, that, Father, the same would be true for them, that their lives would be used by you in such a way to bring glory to Christ. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out in all those places. Uh, And even here, in these days, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you, in just a few minutes, Matt and Corey will be in room 17, so if you have opportunity, in just a few minutes, you can go there and uh, hear them share about their new work in Chicago, so please, uh, please do that. Please receive this now as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing.